0: You know, that's the power of
1: protest. Protest can turn people around. You transform the world by transforming yourselves.
0: When it comes to those temples that we dedicate to sports, we do come together.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Varun Soni, and I'm the Dean of Religious and Spiritual Life at the University of Southern California. This is More Than a Game, a podcast where we explore the human experience through the lens of sports, and search for spiritual wisdom to help us make sense of the time we're living in. Together we'll ask, what can we learn from the religion of sports to help guide us through this challenging moment? Today's episode, Justice. As our nation and our world publicly wrestled with a long history of anti-blackness and police brutality— It's bringing up a lot of pain, anger, and exhaustion. But it's also inspiring a revolution of consciousness and a global awakening. And sports have been an important part of this story. The most recognizable symbol of solidarity has been to take a knee, an act of protest popularized by Colin Kaepernick. He follows in a long line of other athlete activists, people like Jackie Robinson and Muhammad Ali. And so if sports are truly a mirror of society— What does it tell us about where we are now, where we're going, and how we get there? I'm so grateful to be joined by my dear friend and colleague, Professor Jody Armour. He is Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. Jody is a national expert in criminal procedure, critical race theory, and constitutional law. And more importantly, he is a prophetic voice for justice and redemption. So thank you for joining me, Professor Jody Armour.
0: Barun, it's great to be with you again. It's been too long, my friend, since I've seen you in person. Looking forward to that. But let's get it on.
1: Jody, you've written extensively in the past about Colin Kaepernick and the reaction of the public to his pregame protests. And that's shifted so dramatically since we last spoke. At this moment now, what are your thoughts about Kaepernick?
0: Yeah, well, Kaepernick has been vindicated in a lot of ways by the public embrace of him right now. But the vindication isn't complete because he still doesn't have a job. He still has seen many people with a much weaker skill set than he has uh, get jobs ahead of him. So he's still paying the price of his convictions in a
1: way that is still unjust. You know, the NFL essentially blacklisted Kaepernick from the league because he took a knee during the national anthem. And now the NFL has apologized. It's, it's said that Black Lives Matter. The commissioner is actively lobbying for Kaepernick to return. It's kind of dizzying how quickly the NFL turnaround happened here. Is this what redemption looks like for the NFL? Or is this just kind of a cynical ploy by the league to manage their brand during this moment?
0: I think there is certainly a vindication for Cap in the NFL's embrace of his message. And, yes, I think, you know, you can view it somewhat cynically and say they're just trying to catch up with the moment. But that's OK, too. You know, that's the power of protest. Protests can turn people around. And if, if, they, if it makes them start acting in a different way than they've been acting, that's a good thing.
1: You, you know, Jody, you and I have talked a lot about uh about Muhammad Ali in the past, and I know a lot of people are thinking about him right now because Kaepernick's story reminds us of Ali's story. Uh, just like Kaepernick, Ali sacrificed the prime of his career by refusing to fight in, the, in Vietnam. He became in some ways the leader of a social justice movement. Um, and another thing that connects them is that both Kaepernick and Ali are men of faith. They've said that their activism is rooted in their religious belief. In some ways, they're following God's law as opposed to man's law. And so they carry the black prophetic tradition of justice and redemption forward, not as clerics, not as religious figures, but as athletes and pop cultural figures. Can you talk about this intersection of sports and spirituality in American public life and the fact that our, you know, some of our great civil rights leaders and spiritual leaders are actually our athletes?
0: Yeah, you know, for a lot of folks... Uh... Athletics is a kind of religion. We don't pray together, Varun. As King pointed out many years ago and others, uh, one of the most segregated times in our collective life is when we go to our houses of worship. When we go to our mosques and churches and uh, spiritual places, we tend to be extremely segregated. But when it comes to sports, When it comes to those temples that we dedicate to sports, we do come together. You can look in those crowds and see lots of different faces, and you see the real tapestry of America, the multicultural tapestry of America. So that we do have this kind of um, religious fervor when it comes to our sports teams can be a kind of positive thing, a unifying factor. It's hard not to believe in some higher power when you look at an NBA playoff game and you see all of these descendants of slaves, these people whose ancestors came out of the holes of ships in hopeless situations, and now they have the eyes of the world on them, and You know, someone like LeBron James, who's from my hometown of Akron, Ohio, you know, has come out of poverty. You know, he shares my background. To come from that to where he is now, the odds against that are so astronomical that it's hard not to think that there's some kind of providence, you know, involved in these despised people becoming the center of attention for the world. It's just absolutely remarkable to me, and I wonder if black America could have as much impact on the national conversation if it weren't for these athletes who have been able to excel and grab the attention of the nation through their excellence in their sports.
1: I guess my concern is that it it often falls to black athletes to carry the mantle of social justice. The people we're talking about are victims of racism, but somehow they're also now responsible to figure out the remedy of racism. And what what occurs to me at this moment is that it seems as though and I'm hopeful here that there's a national consciousness that these issues, especially anti-blackness and police brutality, are not just black issues or police issues, they're American issues, and that we have to move forward on this together. And what I think it compels us to do is think about how we work together collaboratively, how we work together for justice, how we work together as a team. And there's no better example of that in the public sphere than a sports team. A sports team, I think provides a template for a healthy, multiracial society for us. On our sports teams, people of diverse backgrounds, experiences, and perspectives work together to achieve a common goal in a way that moves everyone forward. So are there lessons that sports can teach larger society at this moment about inclusion, about teamwork? Let Let me go into that just a little bit,
0: right? I remember when I was on a basketball team, you know, through high school, I went to Lower Marion High School, Kobe Bryant's old high school. As Aces representing Lower Marion, we came together as a band of brothers. We had white, black teammates sitting down together, thinking of ourselves as a collective social actor, as an us. We were able to look beyond what divided us and zero in on what was uniting us and the fact that we had to be united and act in a unified way if we were going to be successful. And it reminds me of some research I've been doing. I have a book coming out on August 18th titled Nigger Theory, Race, Language, Unequal Justice, and the Law. Uh, One of the chapters in the book has to do with Uh, Some psychological studies I've gone into and talked about that show that when we are looking at other in-group members, like if you have a white person looking at another white person drinking a glass of water, we've actually have FMRIs and other brain imaging technology, we're in a position now to say, here's your brain and here's your brain on race. And we're able to look at how people's brains behave when they are in situations where they're looking at people from the same race or different races. When you're looking at an outgroup member, let's say you're a white person looking at a black person drink a cup of water, your mirror neurons don't fire. And those mirror neurons are the building blocks of empathy and sympathy. So at an unconscious level, you don't feel the pain and suffering a lot of times of people who are out-group members. But one of the ways that we can tackle that problem, and there's some studies that support this too, is that if you can take people who might otherwise be viewed as out-group members and view them as in-group members, as part of your in-group. And on my basketball team, every one of us in that locker room was an in-group member. Right? We had care and concern for one another. There was sympathetic identification that we had for one another because we were all in it together. You know, then that in it togetherness helped us overcome some of that unconscious indifference that those brain studies show otherwise exist. And sports can help to unify us in that way. And we can extend that, hopefully, to, in, in other ways as well. But that is a key part of the answer to, I think, one of the deepest, most unsettling problems. And that is unconscious lack of care and concern for people who are out-group members. We can redefine the contours of in-group and out-group. Sports help us do that. And if we can do that, we may be able to make some headway in this problem that's haunted
1: us, our original sin. Jody, I I love that because, you know, we start to think about issues of bias and discrimination from legal perspectives or even from sort of spiritual perspectives, but not often from maybe neuroscientific perspectives. And I I hadn't quite thought of it that way. The way you framed it is beautiful that when you're on a team, you're all part of the in-group. It doesn't matter what your religion, ethnicity, socioeconomic status is. You're all working towards the same the same goal, and you have to work together and support each other as sisters and brothers, and that's one of the few, maybe the only, but certainly one of the few places in American society that we publicly see people of diverse backgrounds, experience, and perspectives work together in order to achieve this shared goal. And so that it, it is powerful. All the great civil rights movements are multi-ethnic, multi-religious coalitions. You know, my family comes from India. My great-grandmother was involved in the national struggle against British colonialism with Gandhi. That was a multi-religious coalition. So was the civil rights movement in the United States. So was the anti-apartheid movement, which gets me to the idea of how then do we all carry this load together?
0: Yeah, this is the question of allyship. And it's been around a long time. I really saw it coming to a head in, in the Black Lives Matter movement when, oh, starting 2013, 14, 15, you know, it was given birth by the um, jury's acquittal of George Zimmerman after shooting 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. And the question then was, what are the allies going to do? Who are the allies, the the non-black allies, the white, Latino, Asian allies? and some, some really stepped up at that time. I remember White People for Black Lives here in LA is still a very strong group. They, you know, do a lot of good work. And, you know, what does that really mean, though, to be a, a good, strong ally to do that kind of work? Well, for one thing, it, it means recognizing that you have privilege. As a white person who isn't on the receiving end of anti-black bias, you can you know, go places that black people can't go and have as much of an impact. You know, I can go and say something, but if some of my white colleagues and friends say the same thing, for certain audiences, they'll listen to them before they'll listen to me. You can use that as an ally to move the needle. You can speak to your white family, your white friends, or your Latino and Asian family and friends. You know, there's a lot of anti-blackness in the Latino community just pretty much across the world. Darker people are looked down on by people who aren't as dark as them in just about every group, you know, which is a kind of an extension. That's right. Right? That's <laughs> right.
1: Half my family is from India and half my family is from Africa. And those are the same cultural tropes that often come out of a colonial experience and have been sort of perpetuated across centuries that have also defined their experiences in the way that they've defined my experiences in the US. In India, I think it is the legacy of British colonialism. But in the US, it is the legacy of the model minority theory. We as Indians and and many Asians came to the United States after 1965. And when we could come, we had to be doctors or engineers. And so we came in in, in a particular way. We came in with privilege. We came in uh, with with really good jobs. And what ended up happening is white America looked at these Asian communities and said these are model minorities. Look, they've come with nothing, even though they had to be physicians or engineers to come to the United States, and they've achieved so much. And then that idea became weaponized against Black and Latinx communities in the United States. That look at if Asian Americans can do it, then uh, it must be a cultural thing. There must be something inherent within culture, not inherent within you know the particulars of this community. So, I've lived it, uh, and the hardest conversations, Jody, that I have aren't with my students, they're with my family members. And I think that's the kind of work that all of us have to do if we're really gonna move forward.
0: Now, Varun, when you ask me that question about what does allyship look like, right? You, uh, put your finger right on it, you are representing allyship. You know, I I would say you've gone beyond being an ally to being an accomplice even. Uh, Barun, in being very critical, recognizing your privilege because you, uh, you are coming from a group that has been very successful and you could just revel in that success and distinguish yourself and distance yourself from other minority groups and other marginalized people, but you're not. you studied and you're bringing your insights to the table to criticize the status quo. That's, you, you answered your own question right there. That was beautiful.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jody. I, I appreciate that. I'll be your accomplice any day for anything. Right <laughs> so on. I'm very grateful for that. But But hopefully this also allows other people to reflect upon what they might be able to do. I think when I look at all the great People who inspired me from Mandela to the Dalai Lama, the core idea is that you transform the world by transforming yourselves, right? That if everyone is transformed, the world is transformed. And I think that's, that's a big part of the spiritual side of this, that self-transformation, the self-discipline, the self-care, the, the self-empowerment too. Uh, and if we are able to do that, then we can lift others up as well. Well, Jody, I'm grateful that our young people have your voice, your wisdom, and your work in the world. I'm so grateful to you for everything that you do and continue to do. Please stay strong, my brother. I can't wait to see you soon.
0: My brother, you're the one to uh, really keep keep up the fight. Stay strong, my brother, and healthy in these uh, chaotic times that we find ourselves in. I know you're going to uh, keep on showing us the way, Barun. Thank you.
1: Let's continue exploring the human experience through the lens of sports together. Subscribe to More Than a Game on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show comes from Religion of Sports. Our theme music was composed by Michael Kramer. Alex Claiborne is our producer. Jessica Popovac edits the show. Our executive producers are Amit Sankaran, Gotham Chopra, and Adam Schlossman. And I'm your host, Varun Soni. Thanks for listening.